0: Welcome to Fully Yours, a podcast about food, the sacred, and ordinary moments of extraordinary belonging. Hey, this is Christy. And this is Chloe. And we are two friends from graduate school who have decided to gather around the digital table. And uh, today we are sitting with Liz Marshall.
1: This whole season, our second season, has been looking at the body and how the body um, comes into our conversation around food and the sacred. And we're so excited today to be with Liz Marshall We'll go into a little bit more of who Liz is in a few minutes, but I think that the work Liz does incorporates this, the elements of this conversation so beautifully. And in order to, uh, to kick off our conversation today, we wanted to share a little bit about a recipe that Liz shared with us. It's one of her family's favorites. And it too incorporates many bold flavors and ingredients just like the work she does um, and brings them together into this harmonious dish that can be enjoyed with community.
0: Yeah, so this is a um, sun-dried tomato salsa. And uh, basically what you do is you blend together roasted red peppers and sun-dried tomatoes. There's some garlic, uh, some cilantro in there. Uh, jalapenos which is awesome Mm -hmm. Um, and then you can make it completely dairy free if you want the recipe itself calls for cream cheese but you can also use greek yogurt or just leave it as is it's really really good as is Um, a funny story as I was making it I don't have (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a food processor I only have an immersion blender Mm -hmm. and because these ingredients are so incredibly chunky I had a deep uh, container that I was doing this in, and I put the <laughs> immersion, you know what's coming, I <laughs> put the just immersion down blender down. Like, yeah. on top of everything, and it just sprayed uh-huh. everywhere. So um, no. <laughs> so it's fine. It's still delicious. It's a little bit more ground up than I would have liked. Uh, Chloe Do you had have red like, <laughs> plastered on the walls now? <laughs> uh, it, well, I mean, I'm going to have to wash my, my sweatshirt now. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's but uh, it was, it, I mean, it, it turned out really, really well. How did yours turn out, Chloe?
1: It turned out really nice. It was definitely unexpected. The The recipe itself, um, she shared it with us. It's from online. We'll include it in our show notes. Um, it almost made me a little nervous because it it kind of just trusts you to mm-hmm. go and find these ingredients that there's so many different types of roasted red peppers and do you want things that are marinated or not and do you want to do it yourself and the the proportions felt kind of large Uh, Mm -hmm. like it calls for 14 ounces of roasted red peppers pretty much a whole bag of sun-dried tomatoes I was like oh my goodness I was getting a little bit nervous um but I threw it all in the food processor and it's really cool how the flavors meld together. Um, and we I, I brought some pita chips to dip it with. And the really cool part about this recipe that I love, you look in the comments and so many people say that this is sort of one of their go-to party recipes or, or a dish that they'll bring to a meal with community. And so um, my dad's birthday was yesterday mm. and got to bring it uh, to his birthday dinner and to share with with some of my family so uh, that was special about this dish for me
0: that's beautiful and I, I mean when I finished making it this afternoon it's a huge container yes it's yeah. definitely a shareable recipe yeah for sure so I'm actually headed off later today to a dinner church affiliate uh, that I recently become Uh, part of. So yeah, this has been an amazing recipe and it's nourishing and there's a lot of color in it. So if you're feeling Mm -hmm. color deprived in the winter, this is a really beautiful recipe, some greens and some reds. It's really, really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be
1: sharing it tonight with with your own community. That's great. Yeah, for sure. That is lovely. And I think that's a a great transition to into our conversation with Liz um, that we had a little while ago and to talk about the many many ways that she engages the body uh, and that she does such meaningful work in this area. So sit tight, hopefully enjoy some dip and some chips, and let's have a
0: conversation. Liz is located in Boston, Massachusetts where she currently is studying both social work and theology at Boston University School of Theology. Liz specializes in advocating for survivors of sexual and gender-based violence and is currently interning at Massachusetts General Hospital working with survivors of intimate partner abuse.
1: Earlier this year, Liz completed a unit of something called Clinical Pastoral Education or CPE at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. This training allows individuals to provide chaplaincy care in a hospital setting and is extremely useful for both people pursuing chaplaincy as a vocation and also folks training to become leaders in faith communities or other work settings.
0: Liz is currently seeking ordination in the Episcopal church and she is also a certified Pilates instructor and has explored integrating chant into her Pilates classes above and beyond her vocational
1: passions liz offers a beautifully grounded and kind presence to those she encounters
0: liz it's such a privilege to have you on this show today
2: thanks so much for having me on it's a pleasure to be here
1: absolutely the pleasure is all ours liz you you come to your studies and your work with a really rich background in education community and advocacy work And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the experiences that led you to your current interests.
2: It's a lot of things, but really just thinking back, um, I think back to my time in college, I was privileged with the experience to spend um, a semester abroad in Nepal. And during that time, Mm -hmm. I lived with an incredible, incredible host family. four older host sisters, and the eldest sister, Gita, uh, was the first woman in her family to complete an education beyond middle school, um, and she was starting to work on her second master's, and so um, it was really through kind of listening to her stories and the stories of this these women in this family that I've seen kind of this arc of where my vocation has headed um for for them it was kind of witnessing like what does it mean to have agency um in the midst of kind of a history of oppression i guess for women in that family um and really taking full advantage of educational opportunities. so their family story really was what um kind of spurred my interest and um, kind of, I guess, was the um, grounding for what ended up being my thesis during college. And I was able to continue mm-hmm. doing field research in um, Kenya with a group of women as well. And um, I think in its, I was reflecting on this the other day, um, but it's just, I think it's really incredible to see how certain people in my life have influenced this kind of narrative of um, finding a voice and finding agency in the midst of really hard circumstances Um, and I kind of in that story I found a sort of call um, especially um, thinking back to my work in Kenya I was working with a group of women many of whom were teen mothers and um, had experienced a lot of um, sexual violence throughout their lives. And um, it was, I was sitting in a circle with them. And um, for many of them, it was the first time they were in a supportive community sharing their stories. And um, for me witnessing this and witnessing what it means to kind of be in a community of support um for folks who have been in such traumatic or been been through such traumatic life experiences um it was just really sacred to be there and it was kind of that experience along with several others that um led me post-college to um wanting to explore social justice work. Um, Long story short, I ended up doing two years with uh, um, working with a nonprofit called Life Together. Um, Mm -hmm. They're a social justice um, community organizing fellowship through the Episcopal Church, kind of like a, it's through the Episcopal Service Corps. Um, sorry, that was a long explanation, um, but so I ended up doing two years of service with them and um, living in intentional community with part of the program. And um, for me, kind of through that experience, I realized that like social justice work, whatever it is, is nothing if we're not grounded in a community while we're doing it. Um, and also if we're not grounded in spirituality and finding practices that sustain us in doing the work because the work is hard. Hmm. Um, so, um, those are kind of some of the experiences. And the last one that I'll quickly mention, um, I was part of a church community here in Boston, um, called the crossing, which is an emergent church community. And, um, One Thursday night after our worship service, um, the church invited um, representatives from an organization called Safe Havens, which um, trains clergy and um, lay faith leaders in um, being kind of being informed and being aware about the dynamics of intimate partner violence so that they can then go and um, support members of their congregations, know the resources mm-hmm. in their community and also kind of hold a public um, or be public figures in speaking out against it um, so that mm-hmm. our faith communities aren't places where that perpetuate that. So yeah. um, it was, it was wild for me because that was the first time I was in a faith space where these dynamics were being talked about. Uh And, um, for me, I just realized like, this was the work that I wanted to be doing. And that's kind of through getting involved with safe havens and, um, realizing that my passions really kind of sat at the intersection of, faith communities and working with survivors and how those two could work together um that's kind of what brought me to be you and why I'm studying what I'm studying so sorry that was such a long answer but um
1: well again it's such a textured road that you've been on and and your experiences have all overlaid on one another and brought you to this intersectional place so really appreciate you teasing apart some of that
0: Yeah. And what I'm seeing, too, is that a lot of your work is very narrative based. Um, Your memories and and your stories of where you've been and the people that you've encountered uh, is really, really powerful. And I think one of the things that stands out to me in this conversation is community. You you said that um, that social justice work is nothing if it's not based in community. And so as you reflect on that, and as you reflect on your sense, your personal sense of spirituality, as a person seeking ordination in the Episcopalian church, um, how have your interests in advocacy for people experiencing sexual and gender-based violence been informed by and or informed by your sense of spirituality?
2: Yeah, um, so just going back to this notion of community, um, I think it really, for me, spirituality and community started at a young age. Um, I grew up in an incredible church community where I feel like the whole self was really welcomed. Um, I just remember different tragic moments in the lives of parishioners and the way they brought themselves to church was kind of in that raw place. And so for me kind of seeing that at a young age, um, and also having a really incredible family community. I, I'm number two of four kids. Um, that was kind of a huge grounding place for me. Um, and then unfortunately, when I was in um, college, I was I ended up kind of witnessing how a faith community could unfortunately perpetuate trauma. I had several friends who were both um, survivors of different experiences of um, intimate partner violence and dating violence, as well as um, peers who were part of the queer community and their bodies and stories really weren't welcome in that faith space. And so, um, part of my story was kind of this questioning of faith at that point. Um, But since has become a vision in what I see to be my work and my call, um, that church or faith communities as a whole need to be a space of healing. They need to be places that don't perpetuate blame and shame. Um, this witnessing the sacred that is around, among and within us. Um, And so kind of in thinking about the body and thinking about the body of community, for me, I'm grounded most in spiritual practices that are rooted in the breath. And so for me, those include, chant, sacred chant, I love Tezé chants and some other mm-hmm. uh, more um, contemplative chants. Um, also in kind of I've in breath prayer, um, that's something that I was able to really integrate into um, my work in chaplaincy this summer. This semester, I'm taking a class on clinical trauma work. Um, and, like, the number one, like, aspect of any trauma-based or trauma-informed therapy is, um, creating a sense of trust and safety within a relationship in coming to the present and doing breathing exercises, and so I think it's, it's cool to see how this, um, the arc of, for me, breath being central to my spirituality, also being integrated into my clinical practice with um, survivors of intimate partner violence and trying that out in the therapeutic encounter and seeing that as an incredible starting place for the work of healing.
1: You've covered a lot in that in that response. That is really powerful. You're talking about how faith communities can be a part of what is so pertinent to our conversations culturally right now that are bringing to the surface uh, really long histories of trauma, especially um, sexual or gender-based trauma in many spaces of our culture including faith communities so imagining a faith communities being a place of transformation and healing uh, is is brave and risky and and holds a lot of potential uh, so just really appreciate your conversation on that and then also this role of breath and how breath can can be a tool that can be applied in spiritual practice in faith settings and also in clinical settings too for healing so thank you for for all of that I this past season um, of episodes Christy and I have been concentrating on the body and exploring the relationship of spiritually spirituality and food using this lens of the body Uh, and we've had conversations with both a yoga practitioner so far, as well as an eating disorder specialist in previous episodes. And I was wondering, uh, sort of stepping off of your conversation around breath, in your own experience, have you found a connection, or I guess how have you found a connection between spirituality and the body, uh, as well as food and the body, maybe bringing food in, into the conversation right now in, in this um, in this part of the podcast, we know that your practice of Pilates is deeply rooted in your identity and your spirituality. From your perspective, could our daily embodied experiences provide a connection or a meeting point of sorts between our spiritual lives and and sort of our, our lived daily tangible realities?
2: Yes, um, absolutely. So I'll start with kind of the exploration of Pilates for me. Um, so for me, it was a couple years ago, um, back in 2014, that I found I started pre- just going to a mat Pilates class at my gym. Um, and at first I found it really challenging. But with time, I kind of really had this incredible deep reconnection with my body. And in reconnecting with my body, I found this space for the Holy Spirit to dwell within me. And it was kind of this reclaiming of my body um, that also allowed a deeper sense of spirituality, groundedness, um, it's hard to hard to explain <laughs> completely because it was sure it was one of those like profound um, transformative moments that words cannot fully give do justice to. Um, but I think it was really just this sense of the fact that our breath propels us and nurtures us. Um, and it also makes me think back to my childhood. I remember whenever, I, I've always had some, some anxiety and it's something I continue to work with, um, but I think back to my childhood and any time that I'd get like really upset or anxious about anything, my mom would always say, take a deep breath. And it's, mm-hmm. again, I know I already did some, talked a little bit about the breath. But this kind of sense of calming down and slowing down and being able to be attentive to the beauty that surrounds us um, in being in this kind of tuning into our body. Um, And I think in the context of grad school, of busyness, of a society that is just nonstop all the time this sense that the breath and that our bodies can clue us into when we are getting overwhelmed um, and can help us ground us in the environments that we're in, in the people that we're surrounded by um, and listening to our bodies deeply can give us so much wisdom. Um, I also in kind of, in going off your question about food, um, I think, so being an Episcopalian, um, the Eucharist is central to our practice, our Sunday worship. Hmm. Um, and this space of gathering around the table to be one body um, and share one body is really as i've kind of as i've come to know my episcopal identity as an, as an adult i found this sense of deep connection with the people that surround me as well as as in this ancient practice um, of eating and drinking the body and blood of christ and feeling like this is a sustaining thing that will allow me to do the work that I'm called to do. Um, and I think the practice of Eucharist has also shown up in other areas of my life. I grew up um, in a family where food was so important and we gathered almost every night around the table. And my mom was an amazing, it still is an amazing cook and um this practice of sharing food together and sharing stories together um, was a huge part of my childhood Uh, and i think the way that humans show themselves when they're in this place of being together and nourishing themselves and um witnessing the nourishing of others is this really beautifully profound place um and then in when I was part of the life together community intention in my intentional communities we had two weekly community meals a week and again I saw the practice of eating together and sharing sharing conversation kind of all all the same things coming up again and again and I've seen in church spaces, the way that food brings people together, the stories that are embedded in the food and potlucks and all of that. So, um, yeah, I think food is so rooted in community, which is rooted in spirituality. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what I have to say about that.
0: Yeah, I think that's just incredible. I mean, you've you've pointed towards a lot of things regarding um, regarding. Communal spirituality and communal meals that are shared together. Um, I just I remember Chloe and I over the summer we were texting back and forth and and Chloe was like I made this incredible thing this has been my go to meal it's uh, a piece of bread with some vegan mayonnaise and a slice of tomato and salt and pepper and. Oh, after I got off the phone with you, Chloe, I went and I made that myself. And then I texted mm-hmm. you a picture and I said, cheers to shared meals. There's something really, really beautiful about sharing a meal together, truly. And it's nourishing for the community as a whole. But we're also, I'm, I'm curious about your take on the nourishing of the body, of, of the physical body. Um, and so thinking of many of us who have experienced complicated experiences related to our bodies, whether due to societal norms that discount our bodies or certain experiences that have hurt our bodies in some way. um, What might be the complications or challenges of these embodied spiritual practices? How can communities, again, you know, on an individual basis and on a communal basis, how can we navigate these challenges?
2: Yeah, that is such an important point and something that I continue to wrestle with on a daily basis. Um, I know I was talking about like reading practices in the therapeutic context and for many of the clients I work with, they're not even ready to go there yet. Um, There's With trauma, there is oftentimes such a disconnection from the body Mm -hmm. and um telling someone to be in your body is not that's oftentimes not a realistic request or expectation and so I think for what I'm the place where I'm working right now is really just meeting people where they're at um I also in Talking about food practices, I've had a pretty positive experience personally with food and all of that, but I also see kind of, I, I know you all talk to a, someone who works with eating disorders and trauma is oftentimes so linked with um, changes in appetite and eating patterns and um, difficult relationships with food. And so um, I think there is this sense of trauma, at least as the healing from it takes so much time. And it's, it's a never, I think it's a never, unfortunately, a never ending process. Um, but the ways that practitioners, can, communities can face these things, I think really starts with just not placing expectations on people um inviting people into things but also always thinking about how um alternative ways of engagement may be encountered um i i'm also thinking about experience my experience as a chaplain when um I was working with patients who couldn't speak mm. um, or were getting help breathing and what care looked like in those contexts. Um, and I think there is this, for me, it really changed the way that I understood what spiritual presence, what, what accompaniment meant like, um, this stepping back and not assuming that all our bodies are capable of the same things Mm -hmm. and being really cognizant of how do we meet people where they are? How do we have patience? Um, And I think I'm still, I'm just starting to get into some literature on disability theology. And so that's a new area for me. but I think it's such an important question to be asking. I was talking to a friend who um, had experienced a history of difficulty with food. And she said, she talked about how a place like a dinner church would be probably the hardest place Mm -hmm. for her to ever go. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, and I, there is a sense of like, not every community is gonna be the perfect fit for everyone acknowledging that, but also thinking about alternatives and thinking about ways that, like, even just how do we think about a church potluck um, for people who have difficult relationships with food. Um, I'm seeing also more and more, churches are churches and faith communities are becoming more aware of um, access issues in terms of like buildings weren't back when their church buildings were built um they weren't built with the fact that wheelchairs would likely need to be able to get into the sanctuary so i unfortunately like i think we're just starting to notice these things now which is really sad um But I think, again, it's a sense, I think that the faith communities in general need to re-envision what welcome means to all bodies Um, and how folks with different Differently abled bodies, different relationships with bodies might encounter worship, might encounter community. And again, I think going back to not assuming things, but rather meeting folks where they are. Thank you so much, Liz.
1: I wanted to transition now a little bit to talk about your Sabbath practice because You're one of the few people I know who identifies as Christian and who regularly keeps a Sabbath practice, and it seems to really orient your week and how you move through the world. Um, For our listeners, I just wanted to give a little background of where Sabbath comes from. You know, we have self-care sort of on the rise in our culture, which is so important, but Sabbath really originates in the Jewish tradition. It comes out of the commandment to keep Shabbat. So it's a very unique and um, very sacred and holy practice. It looks different among different Jewish communities um, and is often very communal and, and critical to the life of the community. So recognizing that um, I just wanted to, to hear more about how you have been navigating this tradition as a Christian, um, and how you do that with sensitivity and care. I also wanted to briefly say that in the show notes, we'll be having a link to Abraham Heschel's book, The Sabbath. and. Um, this book was written in 1951, would highly recommend it for any listeners who are not familiar with Shabbat and um, and just the richness of that tradition. So Liz, um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about
2: what your own practice means to you. So I think the term Sabbath and what it means to take Sabbath was really instilled in me when I worked in a church for the first time um, it was a little over three years ago that I started working in a church community an Episcopal Church in Quincy and my supervisor at the time told me he said Monday you're not coming in it's my Sabbath and it's gonna be your Sabbath too I don't take any phone calls I don't do email I don't do any of those things on Mondays, and I'm going to encourage you to try that too. And this this mentor, um, Eric, has continued to be an incredible teacher for me of what it looks like to have healthy work-life boundaries. Um, I've seen... In the social work world, even just my first year out of college, I worked in a nonprofit where the speed at which people worked was unsustainable, and I reached burnout at one point during the year, and I was so lucky to the next year enter into a space that really valued and held up a sense of Sabbath, and I think... For me, Sabbath, like what it means to take a Sabbath has transformed over time. Um, as I started grad school, it was certainly harder because I think having schoolwork, it's a little bit more difficult to say, oh, I'm going to like pause from all my work when most of the work is oftentimes being done at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so the journey of having Sabbath practice in grad school has been more challenging. Um, But right now, this semester, I've actually, this is the first time that I've had a really constant steady Sabbath day. And partially it's because I knew with the intensity of my work with survivors at Mass General and I'm taking two courses on trauma right now. And I said, I need one day a week where I'm not Reading about trauma, where I'm not writing about the clients that I'm working with, I need to have that space. And I'm really grateful. I'm in a, um, I'm on a team of incredible women who value work life boundaries, value self care, value um, sustaining yourself in this work more than I've ever seen. Um, Every staff meeting, we check in on how the weekend was, what people did to take care of themselves, how we can support one another. And in a social work setting, this is actually somewhat abnormal. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think none of them take, um, have their work email or phone on them at home. There's just this healthy separation, and I think um, we're in an environment, especially with technology right now, that all of it follows us, and there's this feeling that we have to get as much done, and we have to keep going, and there's always more to be done, that we're never going to get it done. But I think what I learned, especially from my time doing chaplaincy as well, is that there's no way we're going to be able to see everyone in the hospital. And it's okay to take a pause. It's okay to even just take a Sabbath, brief Sabbath break as part of the day. Um, Because if we keep on going, we're not going to be able to be present for clients, patients, the people we love. um, Because we're going to burn out. And so... Um, so yeah, this year, my Sunday has meant no homework, no, um, no trying not to think about my clients, although that's not completely possible (laughs) because they're always going to be on my mind and my heart. Um, but just having the time to be present to myself, to my body, um feels like a really important practice to me. Mm,
0: I love that. And especially the last phrase. Um Sabbath feels like I I just there's something so um tangible about that. Um I'm currently in a very stressful job situation and and I've forgotten how to feel a little bit. Um, and so taking that break, um, I just, I love the way that you phrase that, uh, Sabbath feels like this for me. Um, and, and as we think about nourishing our bodies, um, I'm also curious about, um, where for you food might play a role in, in Sabbath practice.
2: Yeah. So, um, I have three, main practices that I like to incorporate into my Sunday. I try to be low pressure on myself of like, try to get away from, I have to do X, Y, and Z. But I know there are certain practices for me that do sustain and help me um, re-nourish myself, I guess. Um, And those include finding some place of worship, as part of the day, and it works out. Sunday is, there are plenty of opportunities for that. Um, the second is finding some way to move at some point during the day, whether that be a walk or that uh, there's a re- restorative yoga class I love on Sunday nights that I've gone to for a couple of years that just really helps me, again, enter into my body and breath. And then the last is taking time to make food without the crunch of having to be somewhere and do something. Um, I think I love to cook, but I think one of the biggest challenges of grad school has been the need to make quick meals and oftentimes cooking, feeling needing to figure out how to do it the fastest way possible. Um, I worked in a cafe for a couple summers and I love the practices of chopping. I love kind of taking the time to carefully create something when I have the abundance of time. And so every Sunday I try to create a meal where I don't have to be somewhere at a certain time. um, And I can really take as much time and it's not something that feels stressful but something that I can just be really present to the little moments and parts of it um, I find that just really grounding and then there's something so special about then taking the intentional time to sit down for an hour and enjoy it um, this afternoon I created um, I cooked a red lentil curry that was really yummy um, and then my partner had the day off, so it was really nice, and we just got to sit down and enjoy that. Um, So yeah, food plays a really vital role in my day. And um, something I should also add, one of my other Sabbath practices, once a semester I try to take a silent retreat, and um, I did that two weekends ago. I was out at um, Emory House, which is part of, the Society of St. John the Evangelist, which is rooted in Cambridge. They have a farm out in West Newbury. And um, all the food that we ate over the weekend was part of, was from the farm. They were growing pumpkins. And part of the re- silent retreat was you could also go out and help harvest the food. So getting to eat the food that we were harvesting while um also being in this space away from the busy rhythm of our lives was so beautiful and i think lastly um, the eucharist on sunday when i was there they have a chapel that overlooks it has floor-to-ceiling windows that overlooks the fields that they grow things on and the altar um is right in the corner with the like with the windows right behind the um, priest who is leading the Eucharist. And so there was something so beautiful about the fact that we were in this Eucharist space overlooking the fields that the food that we were going to eat later was being harvested from and just all of this and the community and coming together and just all of it happening at once just felt so grounding
0: you've you've mentioned a lot there specific fruits and vegetables the pumpkins um we always like to ask our guests is there a favorite fruit or vegetable or a special meal that lentil curry sounds so good um or or maybe a story that goes along with it that best captures your reflection so far in your journey
2: um so my mother is a gardener and for years now, she grows fresh tomatoes every summer, and so I think for me, having the fresh tomatoes—I used as a kid, I hated tomatoes, which is wild now. Um, <laughs> but tomato season is a big deal in our household, and um, we grew up. So I grew originally lived in London. Um, I was born in England, and um, in the summers, my family would go to Italy, and Italian food was a big deal, and home cooked Italian food is a big deal for us. And so, fresh tomatoes have a lot of significance for us, and just the caprese salads, the. Um, she'll make a sun. Uh, really good um sun-dried tomato salsa just all of those really yummy things i think of summer especially and that time we have with as a family together um, as being really sacred
1: thank you liz so much for our conversation today thank you for just the peace and calm that I feel like you've even brought to this episode. Um, for listeners who may be inspired by some components of your story, whether they've experienced uh, something that you've discussed or really resonate with, with your own journey and your approach, is there maybe a phrase or just a couple of words that, um, I was thinking even maybe the, um, the, word, the, the phrase from one of the chants that you rely on uh, that you would like to leave with listeners.
2: So my favorite chant um, comes from the story of Elijah in the Old Testament. And the words are, speak through the earthquake, the wind and the fire. Oh, still small voice of love. And for me, that just, there's a sense of calling to the inspiration that is quietly around and within us that is beyond words, that is beyond the anxiety and tragedy and Difficulty of the life that surrounds us, but knowing that God's still small voice is here within and among us allows me to ground myself in a sense of presence, and I hope that you may also find people and practices that allow you to see and find the presence to be open to the moment before you.
1: Thank you so much for joining us at the table. We would love to hear from you.
0: Let us know what you think by leaving a rating on iTunes Or, if you have show ideas, comments, or just want to reach us directly, send us an email at fully.yours.podcast at gmail.com. For today's show notes, our blog, and more, be sure to check us out at fullyyourspodcast.com. Huge thanks to Steve Dry and Catalyst of Harvard-Epworth United Methodist Church, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for their generous grant funding of this podcast. Shout out to the talented Joel Adams and Melody Stanford martin
1: for producing the original song featured in this podcast. Also to Melody for our gorgeous logo design and to our dream team for keeping us grounded
0: and inspired. Until next time, we are fully